it's better to be prepared, it's better to be prepared for, an for an opportunity and not have one than to have an opportunity and not be prepared. You see, when you're not pursuing your goal, you are literally committing spiritual suicide. When you have some goal out here that you're stretching for and reaching for, that takes you out of your comfort zone, you'll find out some talents and abilities you have that you didn't know you have. I started speaking just to elementary school kids because I knew they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and they gave me all kinds of standing ovations. We like you, yeah, yeah. Then I graduated up to junior high school and then to senior high school and then to various community groups and church groups and civic associations and then to colleges and to businesses. Now I'm traveling across the country and then traveling nationally and internationally. But I never would have discovered what I'm able to do right now if I wasn't willing to take a chance. And you've got to be willing to do that. You've got to believe in yourself. A lot of people love me to tell this story. When I got out of school, you know, my first major goal was to buy my mother a home and my hero in broadcasting was Paul Hobby and I wanted to become involved in broadcasting and I love the disc jockeys that were on the air and I wanted to become a disc jockey. See, so I started working to develop my communication skills and expand my vocabulary. I started visualizing myself being a disc jockey. I saw myself on the air having a talk show and playing records and people listening to me. That was my vision. That was my dream. I held that in mind constantly and I would practice all the time. Practice makes what? Absolutely not. This, this just dislodge that from your mind. Practice only makes improvement. Perfection doesn't exist. You need to take it out of the dictionary. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Practice only makes improvement. You can always better your best. You have not done your best work yet. Long as you're here, you have a chance to transcend yourself. So don't believe in perfection. It doesn't exist. It only makes improvement. So I would practice, practice, practice every day, every day, every day. And finally, I went over to this radio station, asked a guy for a job, and Mr. Budwall, and I said, how are you doing, sir? I'd like to get a job. I was working on Miami Beach at, at the Fountain Blue Hotel at the time. Jackie Gleason and the June Taylor dancers were famous. And my favorite program on television, most people would not remember, John Beresford Tipton. Hi, my name is Michael Anthony. I have a check for $1 million. How many of you remember that program, all right? The Millionaire, that was my favorite program on television, you know? So this was my fantasy, you know? And every time we would drive from Miami Beach, I would fantasize, oh, that's the house. When I get my million, I'm gonna buy my mother that home over there. So that was my fantasy. So I went up to Mr. Butterball, and he said, you have any radio experience? I said, no, sir. You have any background in journalism? I said, no, sir. I said, but I can never get experience if you don't give me the opportunity. I've been practicing a lot, sir. He said, I'm sorry, we don't have any job for you. I said, thank you, sir. He didn't know my reasons for being there. My reason, I wanted to use radio as a means to earn the money to buy my mother home. I went back to the radio station again. I said, how you doing, Mr. Butterball? My name is Les Brown. I know your name. Didn't I just see you here yesterday? I said, yes, sir. I said, y'all have any jobs here? Didn't I tell you yesterday we didn't have a job? Yes, sir, but I thought maybe somebody got fired or resigned. I didn't know, sir. I went the next day. How you doing, Mr. Butterball? He said, yes. And I just didn't take it personal. How you doing? So y'all have any jobs here? Didn't I just tell you yesterday and the day before we didn't have any work? I went the next day, showed up like nothing was wrong, like I saw him for the first time. How you doing, Mr. Butterball? Y'all have any? He said, boy, make yourself useful. Go get me some food. 
I said, yes, sir. See, many times when you want more, you've got to be willing to pay your dues. So I became their errand boy. I went to get their lunch and their, their dinner and all kind of food for them. After a while, I would take the food to them in the control room and I would not leave until they would ask me to. And I'd watch them working the controls and I'd memorize their hand movements. And pretty soon they would trust me with their cars to go pick up entertainers that came into town. Entertainers like Sam Cooke, um, Dinah Ross and the Supremes, the Four Tops and the Temptations. I would drive them all over Miami Beach in the disc jockey's cars. Finally, one day I was at the radio station and a guy by the name of Rock was drinking while he was on the air. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was the only one there. None of the other jocks were available. And I was looking at him through the control room window. Pretty soon the phone rang. It was the general manager. I said, hello. He said, Les, this is Mr. Klein. I said, I know. He said, Rock can't finish his program. I said, I know. He said, would you call one of the other DJs to come in? I said, yes, sir. I hung the phone up. I said, now he must be thinking I'm crazy. I called my mom and my girlfriend, Cassandra. I said, y'all come out on the front porch and turn up the radio. I'm about to come on the air. <laughs> I waited for about 20 minutes and I called him back. I said, Mr. Klein, I can't find nobody. He said, young boy, do you know how to segue the records? I said, yes, sir. He said, go in there and don't say nothing here. I said, yes, sir. I couldn't wait to get behind those controls. I put the headphones on. I said, look out, this is me, LB, Triple P. Les Brown, your platter playing papa. There were none before me and there will be none after me. Therefore, that makes me the one and only. Young and single and love to mingle, certified, bona fide, and dubitably qualified to bring you satisfaction, whole lot of action. Look out, baby, I'm your love man. I was hungry. It makes you feel better when you are able to have charge of your destiny, doesn't it? Gives you a good feel. You can give, it gives you choices. You can do more things. Living a dream, changing your life, it's hard. It's hard when you lose all your money, when you, you, you've given it the best that you have, when you have some major setback, it's hard. When a doctor looked at me and said the three horrible words no one wants to hear, you have cancer. It was hard to mobilize my mind and spirit, to listen to tapes and music and read scripture and be around other people and seeking out other prostate cancer conquerors to believe that I could do this. It was hard. Never forget my son said, Daddy, are you going to die? Why are you asking me that? You're not going out much. You're not the bubbly personality that I know you to be. You're not talking much. You're spending a lot of time in the room by yourself, Dad. Are you gonna surrender? Are you giving up? Are you gonna let that, that doctor's opinion become your reality? Will my daddy see me graduate? Yes, yes, son, yes, yes. I'm gonna fight. No, no, I, I don't think it's my time yet. I'm going to see you graduate, but more than that, I've got some other things that I'm going to do with my life. And I thank you for asking me that. Um, but I must tell you that I'm scared. I'm scared. And um, I've never been in this situation before. It's, it's been easy for me to talk to people and encourage people when they've had challenges in their lives. Um, but it's me. And I don't feel less than a man in, 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 in admitting this to you. Yes, I'm scared. And I need some help. See, life is hard, and, and there are some moments in life when you're going to need some help. You're going to need somebody to speak to you. You're going to need somebody to say something to you. I have a friend of mine, Willie Jolly, who's a motivational speaker. He said, a setback is a setup for a comeback. I had to listen to Willie's tapes. I have another friend, Kevin Brace, who's a, who's a speaker. He said, Les, come on, man. You can do this. You can make this happen. You can hit a home run. It's a done deal. You are Les Brown. That cancer's got to get out of your body. I said, talk to me, Kevin. Talk to me. That's what I need to hear. I needed to hear those words. I don't care who you are. Many people won't allow themselves to ask for help. 
because of, of pride. Pride cometh before fall. Because of ego. Ego means edging God out. No, ask for help. Not because you're weak, but because you want to remain strong. And ask for help and don't stop until you get it. I'm here because a lot of people help me. I'm here because a lot of people believed in me at a time when I was struggling to believe in myself. The other thing is, let us say together, it's worth it. Yeah, see, I think, and write this down, you got to find five reasons that will make it worth it for you. Five reasons. What will make it worth it for you? Mine was, I want to take care of my mother. Mine was, I want to do something with my life. What will make it worth it? For you, mine is, I want to leave a legacy. Mine is, I refuse to die and unlive life. What will make it worth it for you? Repeat after me, please. You got to be hungry. As you look at your goals and look at your dreams, write this down. You will fail your way to success. See, 85% of people allow their fear of failure to outweigh their desire to succeed. You're going to make some mistakes and it's okay. Anything that's worth doing is worth doing badly. It's worth doing right if you know how to do it. But if you don't know how to do it, it's worth doing badly until you get it right. You have to be willing to experiment with life. I've done a variety of things and I had absolutely no idea I had the ability to do those things. Here's what I can say about you and I don't even know you. You've got greatness within you, but you will not discover your greatness in your comfort zone. You've got to be willing to get outside of your comfort zone because in order to do something you've never done, you've got to become someone you've never been. And most people, they go to their graves with their greatness still in them. Maybe that's why one woman said in a moment of anguish, what if you live your whole life only to discover that it was wrong? Here's something else as you think about your goals and dreams. What's your why? Why do you want to do it? What drives you? When I was involved in broadcasting, I used to have the first hour of my show as a disc jockey in Columbus, Ohio. I used to give an inspirational program. And there was a lady that used to call me by the name of Audrey Pelmore. Audrey worked at University Hospital. Audrey was an enthusiastic personality that everybody liked her. I mean, she had a radiant smile and she was just one of those people. You ever meet one of those people that everybody just liked them? She was one of those kind of folks. Audrey became stricken with muscular sclerosis at a very young age. And after a while, she became confined to a wheelchair. She had children. And because of her, her physical deterioration, she could no longer take care of her children. And she had to be confined to a nursing home, Alum Creek Nursing Home on Nelson Avenue in Columbus, Ohio. Audrey used to have the nurses at the hospital call the radio station and put the phone to her ear. And she would ask for a certain request and I would ask her to say a few words to the listening audience. One day while I was doing my program, I got a call from one of my regular callers, young lady by the name of Shirley. Shirley, on this particular day, there was a sound in her voice and I detected that something was wrong. And she said to me, it's nice talking to you, Les. I'll be seeing you. And I said, wait, wait, hold a minute, Shirley. There's something wrong. She says, there's nothing wrong. I said, there is, Shirley. I know you. Come on, Shirley, what's wrong? Well, Shirley had been diagnosed as having cancer of the breast. And they told her that she had a 60-40 chance of not surviving. During the time that she had had her medical examination, her husband had become distant. Through the pressure of losing her husband 
and the illness, she just felt, hey, I'm not the kind of person that can handle suffering, and I'd rather just end it quickly. She was at a critical point in her life, and this is the option that she decided to take. I did everything I could to discourage her, to give her a reason to want to go on living. I was trying to find something that she can hold on to that would give her a sense of hope, some thread. And I used scripture and everything. And one of my fallback positions, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And she didn't budge. That did not work. And I was out of my arsenal of what can I do to hold on to her, to get her to change her mind, to create a shift in her thinking. And the thought came to me, I said, Shirley, could you wait until tomorrow? She waited for a long time before she answered. She said, why tomorrow? I said, because if you wait until tomorrow, I'd like to take you by to see Audrey Pelmore. You remember Audrey that I talk about all the time on the air? She said, yes, I like her. I would like to meet her. And she met me at the Allen Creek Nursing Home. And when we got there, we were both very silent because I'd made a pact with her that if this was not enough to discourage her from taking her life, then I would honor our agreement and I would just release her. And I was going to talk to somebody else to try and get her. I didn't tell her that. As we walked down the hall, I did not know exactly what to expect. I had not seen Audrey for some time. When we walked in the room, there Audrey was, all twisted and physically deformed. She had no voluntary use of her arms. She couldn't even fan a fly out of her face. She couldn't get up and move around. And we had to get close to her because her vision was blurred and she can't speak very loudly. And her hearing was somewhat impaired. And as we drew closer to her, I said, Audrey, this is Les. And I have a friend with me named Shirley. How are you doing, Audrey? And with what strength she had, she said, better than good and better than most. And surely, I know as the tears begin to form in our eyes, I know she had to be thinking that here this woman is. She's been on her back, a prisoner in her body for 17 years. She can't turn herself. She can't get up and go to the restroom. She said to me, Les, I'd love to be able to get up and walk out of here with you. I'd love to be able to take care of my children, to be a mother to them, to see them graduate from high school. She said, Les, I can't do that. And I'm doing better than good and better than most. Shirley had to be saying within herself, what right do I have to feel sorry for myself? What right do I have to cry out, why me? And she decided and left there with a commitment that she wanted to live with whatever time that she had left, that she had no right to cut the time off. She had no right to do that. And she left there with a new determination, a new spirit about her. And that's something about what we have, that you have there. Sometimes your options are frozen. See, Audrey can't walk out of a hospital. She did not have the capacity to take care of her children, but she had a freedom of spirit. And that's what we have, wherever we are, with whatever hand that life has dealt us. We have the freedom of spirit. We can go through life whining and weeping, or we can have the kind of spirit that people will say, hey, there's a blessing to be around that person. The staff at the hospital used to go in her room to be encouraged and inspired by her because she didn't feel sorry for herself. And she didn't go through life blaming everybody. See, a lot of people like to try and cheat. 
I was with a friend of mine and we were went into a service station to get some gas. They gave me back too much change. I discovered it down the road and I was turning around going back. God said, you're a fool. Hey man, what when they don't give people enough change? You think they flag the people down? I said, I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for me. I went back and I told the guy, excuse me, sir, you gave me a $20 bill too much. I gave it to the guy, the guy just took it and walked away, he didn't say thank you. The guy in the car laughed and said, I told you, you fool! I said, I'm not responsible for his attitude. I don't care, knowing that he would not say thank you, I would still give it back to him. Because my image of myself says, hey, you don't take something that doesn't belong to you. That's the way my mother raised me. Don't try and cheat, say, well, you know, this little bit won't count. Everything counts. A friend of mine was on welfare after going through a bad experience. Someone, you know, think she and her husband became ill, they couldn't work for a while, and they went on welfare after they both became physically well. He said, look here, we don't ever have to go back to work. We're making more money on welfare than we made when we were working with all the Medicaid benefits and, and all of the food stamps and everything. She said, no. She said, we are not going to accept the checks anymore. He said, I'm not going to work. Now you can go to work if you want to. She went down to the welfare department and said, don't send any more checks to my house. Lady said, excuse me? She said, now I've been working here 25 years. No one has ever come in here and said, don't send any more checks in. Are you sure you're all right? Yes, I am. And she went home and told her husband, don't look for any more checks because I told him to cut the check off. Now we've got to find something to do. And they started a paper route and got over 1,500 customers and were making money hand over fist in a spirit of dignity and achievement, not ripping anybody off. That was a critical choice. She could have very easily said, well, everybody else is doing it. Why don't I do it? But she decided not to follow the crowd. So let's begin to look at this guy called Joe versus the volcano. And let's see what's in it for us. I took the liberty of changing some things to enable them to be symbolic for us. And Tom Hanks plays his role. And for those of you that have not seen the movie, it's about a guy who was going to work every day. It was very depressing. I mean, when you see it, I mean, the photography is very dingy looking and gray and very dim lighting and, and the people are going in looking drab, doing the same old thing every day in the same old way. Some of you work with people like that. There are faces that you wish you never ever saw. Am I right? I mean, if you never saw them again, it would be too soon. I am I right? I'm going right, all right? So this is what was going on. This guy was going into this job where it was a dead end job. He wasn't happy. He was miserable. And many of us can identify with that. He knew that he was capable of doing more. But he had really given up on himself. He had really sold himself out. Yeah, some of us have done that. He made a trade-off. For whatever reason, he decided to do this. That's why we can identify with him. And the volcano is symbolic of the challenges that we invariably face in life. Of the problems that many of us run away from handling. And he had to handle this. And how did he come in contact with this volcano? Well. What happened was he was going to this doctor constantly, he's a hypochondriac, because he wasn't living his purpose, his dream had not found his life work, he would create illnesses for himself. And so what happened in the process, this doctor decided, he set him up really. See, when you're not living your goal, you go through life living like a victim, people can set you up for anything. 
They can run any kind of game on you and you go for it. I had a saying when I was in radio, stand up for what you believe in because you can fall for anything. Well, Joe didn't believe in very much, including himself and his dreams, see? So he was very vulnerable. And so Joe was set up by this doctor. This doctor told him that he had a rare disease and he had six months to live. This disease was called a brain cloud. He believed it. But you know something? It changed his life. It changed his life. And so he was told, look here, you, you, don't, you don't have long to live anyhow. The guy said, why don't you do this? I'm gonna give you all my credit cards and this way you can live like a king and there's something I want you to do. There was a catch. There's a volcano on an island that's about to erupt. And, and unless somebody jumps in that volcano, sacrifice their life, these people on this island will perish. Well, your life isn't worth much and you don't have that long anyhow. <laughs> So why don't you take my credit cards, all my credit cards, American Express, Master Charge, all, take all of them, go live like a king and die like a man. And Joe said, okay. What did he have to lose? He was going to die anyhow. And his life didn't have any meaning and value to him as it was. So this was no big sacrifice on Joe's behalf. Now that says something about us, people, human beings, that when you have not structured your life so that it can have some meaning and value for you, that you'll be willing to throw your life away into anything. See, the volcano could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be a job that does not meet who you are. That you go through life, you're doing it so long, you, you're operating in this and you're acting out that role of mediocrity for so long, you think it's you. It could be a relationship that's no longer giving you what you want and creating dis-ease in your body. It could be any kind of circumstance, like in his work environment, it was toxic, it wasn't good for him. But he didn't have the guts to do anything about it, to act on it. So therefore, it was making him miserable. And as a result, he couldn't see the beauty of life. In fact, in the movie, see, they had in the concrete, there was a, a daisy growing up through the concrete. But people were so caught up in the depression and the gloominess of life, they couldn't even see the daisy when somebody just stepped on it one day. They couldn't see the beauty in life. See, that's what can happen to you in life, that you can get so caught up in the misery of it and the pain and the sickness and the depression and playing a victim and blaming everybody and everything rather than taking responsibility. It will blind you from seeing the stuff out there that's really beautiful. The builder. There was a man who was an efficient builder. He had worked for years in a large company and had reached the age of retirement. His employer asked him to build one more house. It was to be his last commission. The builder took the job, but his heart was not involved. He used inferior materials, timber was poor, and he failed to see the many things that should have been clear to him had he shown even his normal interest in his work. When the house was eventually finished, his employer came to him and said, the house is yours. Here's the key. It's a present from me. The builder immediately regretted that he had not used the best materials and engaged the most capable workers. If only he had known that the house was for him. If he had made a commitment with his life, with his craft, that I'm going to give my best at all times, even if this is my last job, I'm going to give it my best shot because that expresses who I am. He would have been more appreciative. 
of that gift. Would you imagine that? I think that makes a very good point. Larry D'Angelo, who I think is going to be one of the greatest motivational speakers around today, told me a story, a true story of a friend of his that every day when he came home from school, when he would get to uh, a certain block in his neighborhood, there was a neighborhood dog that would chase him. And that dog would start after him barking. Boy, he would run, just running from that dog every day, every day. Finally, he just got tired of that dog chasing him every day. He said, this dog come around here today, I'm going to take a brick of stuff and bust him in the head. So he was walking home that day, minding his own business. Sure enough, same area, there was that dog there. And the dog started barking, he started running, he saw a brick and he stopped and picked up the brick and turned around. And the dog got close to him, he realized the dog didn't have any teeth. He said, he put the brick down and said, get on out of my way. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, all our lives, many of us go through life running from things that ain't got no teeth to do us any harm. Haven't you been afraid to do something and then after you did it, you say, whoa, if I'd known it was this easy, I would have done it before. Haven't you ever had that experience? Raise your hand. Absolutely. So we created this in our minds, false evidence appearing real. We made it real in our minds. That's why Churchill said there's nothing to fear but fear itself. I remember the worst speech I had ever given in my life. I let someone exploit a fear that I had. For years I had a tremendous inferiority complex because I'm not college educated. And this person knew this. And she said, let me write this speech for you. You're going to speak at Ohio State University. Those people are very educated there. And they're going to know when you make grammatical errors and they're going to know because of the substance of your speech that you are not literate. I, I care about you. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. So this person proceeded to write a speech for me. I had a speech in my mind. But this person was stronger than I was negatively than I was positive about my own thoughts. And I gave my power away. With my permission, I allowed this person to guide me to do something that I really didn't want to do. But I didn't feel enough inner strength and conviction about my skills as a speaker and the message that I had to bring to stick by my guns. And I got up there at the Ohio Union and I read this straight speech and did not move and did not take my eyes off the page because I'm not accustomed to reading. And after I finished, some people gave me a standing ovation because I read it extremely well and I was very tense. And I was very nervous. But Boo was with me and we've been together since second grade. And I didn't want to go on the side of the room where he was. I saw the look in his eyes. And another friend of mine by name of Mike Williams and I knew what they were going to say. And they had the look on their face like, what happened to you? And so I didn't go over there. I went over here where I could get some compliments. And these people were saying, you were very good. Oh, thank you very much. I wanted to be fortified before I got this whipping. So finally, we were going to the car, and we got in the car, and Boo was trying to be as tactful as he could. And then he just said, that was the worst speech you have ever given. I said, oh, Boo, I know, I know. Why did you read the speech? What happened to your spontaneity? You've always been an extemporaneous speaker. Les, why did you do that? Well, she told me that they wouldn't accept what I said. Les, let them take you as you are. I gave my power away. Ladies and gentlemen, don't give your power away. You don't need anybody to approve your dream. It was given to you. If they can't see it, it's because it wasn't given to them. 
It was given to you. Hold it, nourish it, cultivate it, work on it. It's yours, it's your baby. Work on it until it comes into fruition. I gave away my power and I said, I'm not going to do that no more. If you've ever given away your power, repeat after me, please. I'm not going to do that no more. I remember once when I lost my job, when I was fired out of broadcasting, September 18th, I'll never forget, 1978. I was behind in my house notes, and my house was up for foreclosure. I did everything I could. I had borrowed as much money as I could borrow. I had talked to family members and friends. I did everything I could, and I couldn't get enough money being unemployed for several months, applying for job after job after job, and couldn't get a job. I couldn't get enough money to save the house, but I never felt, and this is very important, the feeling that I had, I never felt that I was going to lose that house. I wanted that house. And so what I did was very uncanny. I released it. I did the best that I could. And at that time, with the limited money that I did have, I decided to take a trip with my family to Miami to go down and spend time in the sun with my children okay. and my wife. We caught a Greyhound bus from Columbus, Ohio, and we went to Florida. By the time I arrived on the day that the bank was to foreclose, at 12 noon on the house, I got a call from one of my formal assistants who went by the house and called me and said, Les, it's an emergency. Call Columbus right away. I did. And Carolyn Sloan said, Les, you won't believe this. You have a check from the Internal Revenue Service on your income tax. And it was enough to pay the house notes and I had money over. I never received a refund prior to that time or since that time. And I did not leave, lose the house. So there are things that we don't know or understand, but we do know that if we do certain things, that things begin to happen that's in our favor that shows that the universe is on our side. Mm -hmm. Everything that we're seeking, I believe that if we begin to align our thoughts with action, and be relentless. Don't try two or three things or 15 or 20 things, but a hundred things, 500 things if necessary, 10,000 things as Edison did if necessary mm -hmm. until we find a way out. Many of us, we eliminate many possibilities for ourselves because we really don't do all we can do. I think A.O. Williams was right when he said, all we can do is all we can do and all we can do is enough. And I think, honestly speaking, even judging from myself, and I think that my commitment is stronger than most people. But if I had to literally measure my, my commitment in terms of what I put forth in my dream, I would say that I might have given about 18 to 20% of what I'm really capable of. Mm. As high in consciousness as I believe that I am, comparatively speaking, where I used to be, I'm still nowhere near reaching 50% of the commitment that I can make to accelerate the growth and the development of my dream and the manifestation of the things that I know within myself that I'm capable of producing. So our biggest challenge is beginning to look at within ourselves 
to remove those energy blocks because if we are not producing the income that we want, let us not look outside of ourselves, but look within ourselves to find out how am I blocking me? Mm -hmm. Am I really giving it all that I have? I have. Uh, am I really being as creative as I can be? Am I really unstoppable? Am I as relentless as I can be? Am I exhausting every means possible? Am I turning up every rock to find what it is that I'm looking for? How is it that one man or woman can do it and do a million times more than these other people and the other ones don't? It has to be consciousness. It has to be, and when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about a collection of our thoughts, our feelings, and our emotions, and experiences used as an active force to produce in our lives that which we want to produce. Because everything that exists in life, the microphones that we're speaking in, the shoes that we have on our feet, the chairs that we're sitting in, the clothes that we're wearing, the homes that we live in, the cars that we drive, all of that came out of our consciousness. That all came out of the invisible into the visible. And man was a vehicle, the, the outlet to produce that. Wherever we are stopped in our dream, we stopped at a place called willingness. Anybody that has fallen short of their goals, they ran into something that they were not willing to handle. Because in order to reach your dream, in order to make things happen, there must be a willingness to do what is required. If the need is to raise $2,000, and let's say you have a set of tapes for $40, are you willing to make 200 calls a day? Are you willing to stand on a corner and talk to people and say, listen, I've got a set of tapes here that can change your life. Are you willing to make the commitment that you will not go to sleep until you sell at least 10 tapes a day? Are you willing to say, if it takes me 12 hours walking and talking to people all day long until I find 10 people that will say yes, if I have to talk to 200 people or 300 people that in order to provide food for my family, to provide shelter, to not to have creditors hounding me, am I willing to talk to 300 people a day? Am I willing to stand in an airport and sell tapes? Am I willing to go out and make calls again and again and again? Am I willing to knock on doors? Am I willing to do that?